0: Hi, welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure to welcome a friend, Mike Walsh, who is the global futurist, the CEO of a company called Tomorrow. He helps business leaders and Fortune 500 companies thrive in this era of disruptive technology change. He addresses how leaders need to adapt to a world changed by AI, algorithms, and automation, and what it takes to design companies for the 21st century. His book, Futuretainment, was the winner of the Design Award by the Art Directors Club in New York. He also wrote the Dictionary of Dangerous Ideas, a Dictionary of 88 Disruptive Ideas and Technologies. Each week, he has his own podcast where he interviews provocative thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers on on it. Of course, I've been a guest, of course. (laughs) Between Worlds, Mike's newest book, The Algorithmic Leader, presents a pragmatic guide for future leaders and is based on many of the fascinating people Mike has met over the years. I'd like to welcome my friend Mike to the show.
1: I feel very welcomed. It's uh, it's good to uh, be back in touch. Uh, I'm just sad that we can't do this over a cup of coffee like we do normally.
0: Yes, me too. But the good news is that we're you know safe and healthy, and and everything is going well. Uh, At least, you know, as well as it can expected. but we're going to dig into that in a second. But before we get started, I always have to start with bullish and bearish to kind of get the juices flowing and and have a little fun. So bullish, you're for it. Mm -hmm. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First one, flying cars. Very bullish.
1: Oh, all right. I think it's going to take longer than we expect. <laughs> okay. But I'm totally done right. for it. All
0: yeah. right. All right. So I figured it's you know, being the proclaimed futurist, I'm gonna go future on you. All right. All Second right. one. Time travel. Oh god. Bear it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I just I We're just go.
1: I, I I wouldn't be able to resist fiddling with my own life, you know. So I think <laughs> that's only gonna end badly for me and probably for everybody else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Then the third one is really going to bring it all home. All right. The third one, living on Mars.
1: Very bearish.
0: Okay. All right. I mean, so we. Covered- I live in
1: Australia. I mean, this is about as close to Mars as you can get. And <laughs> I don't think you want to turn the needle further on dry, red, and sandy. Uh, not a good idea. Stick with the water.
0: All right. So, uh, Let's start with flying cars. You say bullish, so let's let's start there. What? So t- tell me, tell me what you're thinking. I know you've been watching this for a while, and obviously we've got drones and sort of flying taxis in certain places that are all you know kind of what's going to happen in the future. But what do you think about flying cars? Look,
1: I think you have to forget about the fact that if fly, talking about flying cars is a bit like talking about escalators as moving staircases. Uh, there's going to become a time where we just think it's a funny concept. We're just going to think of transportation. And I've spent most of my life living or spending time in uh, mega cities uh, like uh, London and New York and Tokyo, Istanbul, and all of these places are just plagued with traffic. You organize your whole life around uh, a hundred-year-old transportation system. So if there was a way of autonomously creating personal transport devices that were um, fully autonomous and smart and just got you to where you needed to go, I think it'd be brilliant. I think it would transform the entire design of cities.
0: And I do too, you know, we are recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and I live in Los Angeles, which is just another name for traffic jam. So, you know, in the dictionary, I should just say traffic jam, Los Angeles. And driving now is a joy, right? Because the roads are empty. But we don't have a solution when people start Getting back to some kind of commuting life, right? Whether it's going to work, whether it's taking the kids to school, or doing the things after school with your children, or you know whatever it is where you have to transport yourself from point A to point B, uh, and we don't have the alternative of sort of you know city trains. We've got buses, uh, but we've got almost no alternative. So it'll be very interesting, based on what you just said, right? To see do we start to rethink the mode and the timing of when people do things to yeah. try to give some relief based on what we've learned during this time.
1: I, I, but actually what you describe, the experience of driving in LA today is what it was like 50 years ago because LA was the city of the future. Highways were, high, were basically the hyperloops of 1950 and there weren't as many people. So cars were incredibly efficient. Uh, we just need to update that model, I think now for the 21st century.
0: Absolutely. And and so let's think through that. So, you know, maybe it's not gonna be flying cars anytime soon. <laughs> but when you think about, you know, from a pure, you know, autonomous vehicle, some of the things we're learning around, uh, you know, using things like Hyperloop from Elon Musk's company, or what we're doing around electric vehicles, you know, where, where, where do you think we have huge opportunity to, to take advantage of that at this point?
1: To me, it's the it's probably the least sexy part of all of this, which is data. Uh, it, it's not so much the the fuel source or the nature of the transportation or you know tunnels or whatever it else. The more we can actually understand about our transportation patterns, where we're going, when we need to go, how we move people around, connected cars, I think in many ways is the is the stepping stone to a much smarter transportation system, uh, because then we can manage traffic. And it, it, you know, I, I love old vintage muscle cars, right? But but I, those things are just not going to exist in the new world where really driving is like packets in a in a TCP/IP network, and you just need to manage those little packets of information, like you would in any kind of supply chain or logistics system. So if we can take a data driven approach uh, to not just parcels but people and transport we're going to find it's much easier moving people around even in very dense super cities
0: well so you know i I used to always joke when i became president i don't know if i joke about that now but you know when when i become president i'm gonna i'm gonna synchronize stoplights like let's just start with the basics right because sometimes (laughs) it's the most obvious thing right it's like let's just if everyone's going in the same direction at the same time like there's going to be traffic. You know, if the things aren't synchronized and you're just stopping and starting, there's going to be traffic. Like sometimes it don't put an on-ramp where the off-ramp is.
1: Well, if you were president, you would potentially be tempted to synchronize them to your benefit. Uh, So you always get a green light. And uh, there used to be a story years ago in Russia, you could actually buy these special sirens. Uh, They cost a fortune, but basically that meant you didn't have to obey road rules. And, uh, And I kind of always think about that because I think in this new world that's coming, and this is something I wrote about actually in my my last book, algorithms are not neutral. Uh, They're often a zero-sum game. They're, They're optimizing for something. And I was always very suspicious of applications like Waze, you know, because to me, I was wondering about whether they were actually giving me a slightly inefficient route that actually maximized network traffic for everyone. So if I paid a little bit more, could I get a slightly more aggressive algorithm that would actually prioritize my transportation trip versus others? And I and I think we're going to start to see that as we see more self-driving cars, more autonomous systems. You're going to want to know the trade-off. Are you prioritizing you as the occupant, or you're prioritizing external people to the car? Because there are going to be times where there's going to be a trade-off, where the automated system is going to have to pick who lives and who survives.
0: Yeah. And I, and I say that often, right? Because sometimes, um, like the example I give is when you choose like who's going to, you know, if you're going to hit somebody or, you know, the people in the car are going to die, but there's the, also the the, the- the
1: classic trolley problem. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but then you have, you know, one step below that where I think the statistic in the United States anyway is like 25% of organ donors, not to get morbid on the conversation, come from accidents, car accidents. And so, you know, the ripple effect of when you change something like that from a technology standpoint in order to improve safety in one place, it may be impacting something somewhere else. And so does it simultaneously have to say, well, then, you know, Producing 3D organs or growing organs or you know harvesting or doing whatever you're doing to not disrupt the this is so you know terrible to say it this way right but the supply chain in that way um, it, you know it has these ramifications and sometimes when we make a fix somewhere it has implications somewhere else.
1: This this relates to the the, the second question you asked me, which is, uh, am I a fan of time travel? And. You know, for me, time travel is a disaster because of all the laws of unintended consequences of the decisions we make. Uh, In a way, leaders in the 21st century are going to need to have a similar ability to map the the decision tree of, of, of implications from small decisions they make around AI, algorithmic design, machine learning. Because, you know, as you mentioned with organ donation, these small decisions we make around the design of how... AIs are optimized, are going to have incredible impacts uh, on our organizations, on our customers, on our society. And it's not going to be an excuse uh, to to stand up in Congress later and say, listen, I had no idea this was going to happen, because that is actually our job, I believe, in, in, in the 21st century. It's being able to predict and understand and think through the ethical implications of some of these critical design choices
0: yeah and and uh, you know, uh, there was a one of my very first presentations I saw when I first joined Salesforce was from Dr. Vivian Ming talking about sort of data bias. And um, a lot of this is what you were saying, like making the decision and and maybe some bias behind it, like you were saying, like, yes, of course, I would make the traffic lights work in my favor, of course, right? Um, and And thinking about when people are solving, any kind of issue or, you know, problem or or trying to innovate or design a better solution for something, they bring their own bias to the table of, of how they do it and why they think that's, you know, the best way to do it. What have you found, you know, in all of your work, and obviously these conversations around innovation and disruption is the best way to try, you can't completely avoid it, but how do you recognize it and maybe... Have show an opportunity of how to maybe design things differently to remove some of that bias?
1: I think we have to be careful with the concept of bias because it, it sounds like it's intrinsically bad. Uh, we actually couldn't survive without some bias uh, because for me, a bias is also heuristic. It's a shortcut. It's how we can process the complexity of the world and respond quickly. Uh, it, it's something that came from savannah you know when we learned to out- outrun tigers or at least run faster than our friend uh, <laughs> <laughs> right when we're being chased by a tiger uh, so you know in many situations you don't have time to uh, be probabilistic you've got to be deterministic but there are other aspects uh, where things are more complex and nuanced where we have to we have to take a more considered approach And when you're designing AI systems, or you're designing any kind of automated system, there's the risk that you're essentially going to automate your heuristics at scale, your shortcuts. So it's not so much the bias that you bring, it's the underlying data that you're training a system on. So in a way, we have to become data anthropologists. We have to ask, where did this data come from? Who collected it? For what purpose? Was the purpose that it was collected relevant for the purpose we're going to use it for? Is it representative? And and having that very granular approach to understanding the inputs into the systems we design becomes even more important as these systems become more complex and our organizations become more complex and we rely on these automated systems. Because what I'm really frightened of is, is a future in which we start to build more algorithmic organizations, but the number of people in the organization who can understand the complexity of how those systems were designed or what drives their decision-making, becomes fewer and fewer. And that's when, as you say, biases become deeply embedded in the in the substructure of the firm itself.
0: Yeah. And and, and when I say unconscious bias, I'll give you an example, like even designing software uh, like CRM and you design it for someone with sight, like there's 10 fields on, well, what if you can't see them? <laughs>
1: yeah. but,
0: and so even something that I don't want to say simple, but that's simple, right? And so you come with the okay. Well, potentially everybody who sees this is going to see it like I see it. Yeah. Well, that's not true, right? Um, and so the equality of it's just like saying, look, this apartment, is, you know, needs to have ramps if someone is in a wheelchair, uh, and if you don't have it, then you're excluding that set of people, right? There's, and so is it just you know straight. I'm ignoring it and don't care, or I just unconsciously didn't even think of it when I designed it. I just didn't even think of it, right? And not maliciously. I just no, was not in my sort of purview or my knowledge. And actually, and so- taking
1: taking a deliberate um, stance towards uh, diversity and inclusion, and and uh, designing for people with different uh, abilities and needs it's not just a case of altruism. It actually can lead you to greater innovation. So, you know, in this example of an interface that is heavily field-dependent visual, you'd say, okay, uh, what if we design this so it was basically nat- natural language-based, you know, where you could basically just talk to the system. Right, right. Going down that path may actually lead you to a breakthrough in your interface design, you know, where actually you are, you are actually taking concepts from computing from 30 or 40 years ago and fields aren't actually that relevant if you have a smarter front-end interface to the whole thing or, or something that can learn and figure out what those fields should be by your behavior.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, there's lots of people that listen to this uh, podcast that are at all levels, right, individual contributors, managers, small business startups, enterprises, et cetera. And as we're in the middle of something that's been so globally disruptive across, you know, every industry, nobody was spared in this particular instance globally, Um, how would you recommend they sort of stop, pause, reassess, do an inventory? You know, what, what are the things you're saying to your clients today about how to take this opportunity to enhance the work in, you know, sort of in the business in many ways, and then thinking kind of out 18, 24, 36 months from now, I know it's really hard. But, in thinking, how do we prepare ourselves uh, for when things uh, you know start to stabilize more consistently
1: at the broadest level, we are living through a civilization scale event it's so rare that you have something that affects an entire civilization simultaneously uh, and and what that does is that it it resets all your behaviors, your mindsets, all of your models for doing things. You have to reconsider them. I've got some clients uh, in the retail sector. And, you know, like like everyone else in retail, they've been enhancing their supply chain and they've been doing more stuff online. But they have all of these assets still, like physical stores, which they didn't know what to do with. And so recently what they've been doing is, is, is as things start to open up, they send their sales associates into their physical stores. They don't let customers in. The sales associates are actually doing direct live WhatsApp calls, they're showing people and demonstrating things in the stores. So they're turning their stores essentially into mini studios. So I, I think we have this interesting opportunity to reconsider everything that that we use to run our organizations, to run our businesses, even our personal capabilities, and to reconsider what those might mean in, in this new world we're going into.
0: Yeah, and it, what's interesting in that what you just said is, that's not a new concept right we've had mm-hmm. showrooming now where we've yeah. got brands that right don't even you know have anything to physically pick up you just go and see and that's very it was very disruptive instead of having large footprint you don't need to have all the warehousing space behind the store that you can just have and then ship it people's expectations were okay that that was all right you had tesla saying look you can't drive the car out through the mall you know or through the uh through the second story, you know, come in and see it and, and allow it to be much more relationship, engaging, experiential, whatever terms you want to use. Uh, and so that wasn't widely adopted. No. And this happening, yeah, is like cracking, I say two things, right? It kind of has cracked open the lack of investments certain companies, brands, industries have not made, right? Uh, and on the other side, uh, it, has, it has shown and, and highlighted businesses that were ahead from a digital investment standpoint, that they may be in a better situation uh, than those that did not fare.
1: But I, I think one thing is also, uh, it's become really clear in this, is that there's no longer any such thing as digital disruption. Uh, there's just digital delivery and what i mean by that is is that it being digital now is nothing special if you're not a digital business you're not in business anymore because people literally cannot do business with you they cannot interact with you they cannot buy from you you cannot even serve them so th- what this is showing is not as you say just uh, where some organizations have underfunded their digital transformation it's pointing the path ahead now to the to the next big leap that we have to all take which is how do we better leverage data and artificial intelligence and machine learning to really create a whole different set of experiences for our customers. Everyone's excited now about remote work. And and I think even as people start to go back in the the next little while, that's gonna be a big part of the way organizations run. But to me, that's just the tip of the iceberg because the question is not, can you work from anywhere? The question is, okay, if you were now gonna design a company from scratch, how should people make decisions um how do you design your teams uh, what is the right way to collaborate how do you document your decisions how do we better use automation if if this pandemic's taught us anything it's just how fragile our organizational design has been
0: absolutely and you know i i couldn't agree more i mean i think that there's two things actually one i'd say i agree with the sentiment of it but two i'd say you still, even let's call it six months ago, I was still meeting with customers who were pushing back on the digital transformation conversation, <laughs> right? Now, from a cost optimization and modernizing the infrastructure, if you want to call that digital transformation, but for me, digital technology transformation, sort of people process side, if you bring those two things together. So if it's just modernizing and reducing costs by using this, these new digital technologies, that to me isn't Sort of transformation, right? Thinking no. about what you were just saying, right? Where there, you know, it's there's an engagement is very different, and people are coming in and they're having a very different experience. When you're, it, that's really the people process side because the technology has been available to do the things that we're doing now for a long time. You know, remote conferencing and team meetings, absolutely. And all so go ahead. And, and, yeah.
1: what, and what we used to call digital transformation is now just business continuity, right? So. So what we have to ask ourselves is, what is real transformation now? And yeah. and I think you have to say, if you were going to launch a new business today in the midst of a pandemic, what would it look like? And the answer to that question will give you a bit of a sense of what the next organization will be. And and I think when, when all of this ends, uh, we're not going to go back to the way things were. Uh, because not only will we have had a taste of working in new ways, getting smarter, the way we use data to make decisions, customers have are going to have a completely different set of experiences. Um, I, one of the people I interviewed recently was the chief digital officer of Mars. And he said, you know, what they've discovered in this crisis is that their entire model for making decisions and planning with retailers had to change. I mean in 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 week 1 of the crisis people could buy things from groceries pretty easily. By week 6 online grocery was 15% of the US market, which is something that was meant to take 5 years to happen. It happened in 6 weeks. So it meant that their whole planning systems, their internal clock speed had to dramatically increase.
0: And so if you I'm going to ask you back, if you were going to start a business today and it can't be sort of in what you're doing right now, right? If you were to say look I have a client, he's, he or she's got some money, they want to you know, start a new business today. What would be the two or three things you'd say to them? I don't need to know specifically like an in- invention or something like that, but what would be the things if you said, if you're really going to do this today, here are the yeah. two or three things you really have to think of.
1: I think the, the, the first question you have to ask yourself, regardless of the industry or profession you're in, is what is possible now as a result of AI that we couldn't do before? And that has to be the cornerstone of what you do. Too much of, I think, transformation has been how do we port our traditional processes and systems and get you know a marginal increase in efficiency as a result of technology. So this, to me, is digital incrementalism, not true digital transformation. Because to truly transform, you've got to say what is what is now simply uh, possible that we was impossible before. So that, to me, is the starting point. And I think if you look at it that way, your entire model of, of what you design changes. Do you really need 150,000 employees? Um, or can you do this with 200 people geographically dispersed, but with high levels of automation and technology and and uh, and machine learning? So I think, for me, that's the starting point. And then the second question is, uh, how can we now serve customers in, in ways that are new and innovative and highly personalized. Because so much of the way we've served customers in the past has been driven by silos and organizational constraints and geographic markets and regulation. So I think if you can think of those two questions, uh, whether you're in insurance or financial services or sales or technology, it it changes your perspective on, on what's possible.
0: And I think what's possible is what should be inspiring at this moment. It's overwhelming, right there? I mean, there's just <laughs> no aspect of our life that isn't touched. Um, yeah you know, and and first and foremost, you know, people listening like you know, this is all about feeling safe and have, making sure your employees feel safe and your team members feel safe and your you know family is healthy and has access to what they need. And in a perfect world, we would have equality even on things like that. But that's not the reality but i would say that it's it's also i feel like it's this opportunity for this kind of global reset what are the things we weren't wasn't possible before as you said right that are now possible and, and it go ahead
1: sorry no, i said you know we we all have to find our own personal path of transformation through this as well it's not just organizations i don't think there is a leader on the planet who is now not also reconsidering their capabilities their mindsets and their own personal path of transformation
0: well and i and i think that even if you want to the last thing i want to sort of cover really quickly is this productivity and work and working from home you know i've worked from home now for 14 years um i haven't gone into an office i mean i go into our office but i don't have a office you know i don't have a a desk or a place. I mean, I, I work from home. I'm a remote worker. And at first it was a big adjustment for me because I liked the stimulation of seeing people and having meetings. And then I got used to it. Um, and now I'm in this limbo of I'm a little bit overloaded on video calls, uh, <laughs> but but I like the connection and I like seeing people. But, um, but for some, working from home is like really disruptive to them. And so... You know, what about productivity and ways in which uh, you see clients doing things in a creative way to keep employees engaged, uh, you know, and, and, and productive during this time?
1: Uh, first of all, I, I would say I, I don't even believe in the concept of remote work because remote works presupposes that somewhere there is a physical location where the real work gets done. And, and so I think I think very soon we're just going to talk about work. And this new work that we do, it, you should have total location independence. So it, it shouldn't matter where you are. But a big part of that, and this is what's happening now, is that you can't just take all of our worst habits of the physical office, you know, endless meetings where everyone was invited and just port them on to digital platforms because that's exactly what's happening now you know as you said you're overloaded with video calls you know why because people just are are, they they think that by having a a video call that somehow they're participating in the future so now they're just having lots of them actually this the biggest lesson of let's call it distributed work is asynchronous um, communication so giving people the time and space to to reflect and collect data and to have a meaningful set of responses to a particular issue decision and respond in their own time, and only then, if you actually need to really nut or or, or to the heart of a problem or to build consensus or take something offline so you don't end this endless um, you know chat discussion, then have a then have a meeting. But I would say for eighty percent of communications they they don't need to be in real time. And I think we've I think we've forgotten that. But you you know who does this very well, the organizations that were distributed from the beginning, long before the crisis. There were many organizations that were designed to not have a physical office, and they worked out a long time ago. Uh, whether it's GitHub or Zapier or you know it, these tech organizations realize that you have to actually change your operating system, your internal operating system of how you make decisions and how you communicate.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think those are great pieces of advice, Mike, and thank you so much for sort of sharing your you know, global view and and so diverse in sort of all of the things you talk about and watch. So I appreciate you spending time with us today on the What's Next podcast and kind of sharing your wisdom. But I want to make sure people can uh, follow up with you and what's the best way to continue to consume your content, including your books and and uh, yeah. you know, just just follow you. Yeah. Uh,
1: so I've got, I've got a few things. Uh, you can uh, buy my book on Amazon or Audible. It's called The Algorithmic Leader. Uh, if you follow my YouTube channel, uh, which is YouTube slash uh, Michael Walsh, I've got a new series called uh, "New Rules for a New World." So every week I put out a video uh, about you know addressing the current crisis. And uh, if you just prefer to look at pretty pictures, you can follow Instagram.
0: It's <laughs> just my
1: my handle is Mike Walsh.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Mike, uh, for spending time with us here today. Uh, it's it's been a pleasure uh, connecting with you from afar, Los Angeles to Australia. But uh, I appreciate your time. I'm grateful for you joining us and and have an amazing rest of 2020, wherever it may take you.
1: Thanks, Tiffany. It's been a pleasure.
0: What a fun conversation talking with my friend, Mike, about flying cars, time travel, living on Mars, but more importantly, everything we have in front of us with this amazing opportunity in innovation. And not thinking about digital transformation in an incremental way, but really thinking about what is possible now versus what was possible before. Although we have faced something on a global basis we've never seen before, there's always a silver lining and opportunity for us to make it better next time around. So I hope you enjoyed this week's What's Next with Tiffany Bova. Please subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, and I look forward to having you join me again next time. Have a great day.